0: Now, friends, we've come to a little book with a great message. This is an example of the atom bomb in the Bible because it's such a small thing and it has such a potent message. Now, Obadiah is one of the prophets that we know absolutely nothing about. We only know that he wrote this prophecy. Now, there are actually four prophets that are cloaked in anonymity. We don't know anything about them. The other three would be Habakkuk, Haggai, and Malachi. Now, Obadiah is like a ghost rider. He's there, but we do not know him. He lived up to his name, by the way, for his name means servant of. Of Jehovah. You see, a servant boasts of no genealogy. He doesn't put himself forward. He has to demonstrate by what he does that he can even claim the place of a servant. And actually, what you have in Obadiah is that which is very much like the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark presents the Lord Jesus Christ as the servant of Jehovah. That character of our Lord is there. And in the Gospel of Mark, there's no genealogy because we don't need that for a servant. And in the Gospel of Mark, it's the gospel of action. The question is, is he able to do what he claims that he can do? And so Obadiah, Is just a prophet who wrote one of the great prophecies of the Scripture. Now, the great difficulty with Obadiah has always been where to date it. Where does it fit in to the history of the nation Israel? And very candidly, there's a great deal of difficulty at this particular point. There are some who give the date as early as 887 B.C. And that would fix the time during the reign of the bloody Athaliah. You find that record over in Second Kings the eighth chapter verses 16 through 26, which we'll not turn to. Dr. Pusey uh, has placed it during the reign of Jehoshaphat. You find that in Second Chronicles 17:7. 7. And by the way, he also made this statement concerning Obadiah. God is will that his name alone and his brief prophecy should be known to the world. Now actually his name was as common in that day as the name John is today. And because you find it mentioned in Second Chronicles seventeen seven would not mean that, that Obadiah is the one we have here. And Canon Farah, he gave the date as 587 B.C., and Dr. Moorhead concurred in this, as he suggested that Obadiah was probably a contemporary with Jeremiah. And the whole question seems to hinge on verse 11, and verse 11 reads like this, "...in the day that thou stoodest on the other side in the day that the strangers carried away captive, his forces and foreigners entered into his gates, cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. That would mean here that either this is historical or prophetic. And the natural interpretation, of course, is to accept the historical one, and that would give us the late date. Most likely, it was written subsequent to the Babylonian captivity. It was written in that particular time around the time of Jeremiah, by the way. And the early dating, as far as I'm concerned, is out. Now, he's going to discuss actually the little kingdom of Edom. And the key to this entire little book is Obadiah, verse 6. How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought out? And the outline that I have of the book is this. You have in the first 16 verses, and there's only one chapter, and so that would be chapter 1 if you want to identify it like that. The subject is Edom and is destruction. And you have the charge against Edom, crime of Edom, and the catastrophe that came to Edom. And then you have in verses 17 to 21, Israel, and that's restoration. Condition of Israel, verse 17. Calling of Israel, verse 18. And consummation of all things, in verses 19 through 21. Now, that gives you very briefly an outline of this book. Now, this opens with the vision of Obadiah. And I should read the entire first verse. The vision of Obadiah. Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a rumor from the Lord And an ambassador is sent among the heathen, that is, the Gentiles, the nations. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Now, this is the vision of Obadiah. And again, somebody is going to say, well, who's Obadiah? Well, I don't know, and I hope you won't let that word get out, because... There are some people here in Southern California that think I know. I don't know. And the very interesting thing is that though I've read quite a few books on Obadiah, I never found anybody that did know who he is. So I don't mind joining that illustrious group of those who do not know who Obadiah is. And I just have to answer that very truly. Now, his name, as we've indicated, was a very common name in Israel. It's rather like Abdullah is among the Arabs today. And by the way, Abdullah means servant of God. So Obadiah and Abdullah, two names that were common among those people over there. But this Obadiah, we know nothing about. And we have here a book that... A great many people feel like it's, you know, something that's not worth even fooling with. If it even dropped out of the Bible, you wouldn't lose very much. And I frankly think you'd lose a great deal. It seems to deal with that which is past, largely, yet in it is a great message for us today. And what you have here is not that which is cold ashes, but you have here spewing hot lava, And it has a message for you and me today. And Obadiah tells us immediately, bluntly and to the point here, he begins, as we have seen the vision of Obadiah, but right away he says, "...thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom." And we now are going to ask another question. Who's Edom? Who are we talking about? Well, we find out in verse 6 that we gave you a moment ago as a key verse. It reads, and I'll read it again, How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought out? Now, I consider that, I believe, is the key to the book. And if we're going to find out now about Edom, we're going to have to go back and look at Esau. Who is Esau? Because we're told something very interesting back in the book of Genesis. In the 36th chapter, verse 1, it says, Now these are the generations of Esau. Who is Edom? And so the little nation of Edom came from Esau, just as the nation Israel came from Jacob. And now notice another statement here in Genesis 36. Now verse 8 and verse 9. Thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Now again, and these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. And I'm of the opinion that when Moses wrote that, He did not know that the Spirit of God was having him emphasize that for a purpose. Because when we come to Obadiah now, and also to Malachi, we want to know who Edom is. Well, Esau is Edom. The nation Edom came from Esau. Edom is Esau. The Edomites were those who were descended from Esau. And now the story of Esau and Jacob is something that's, Before us also, and it's quite interesting, they were twin brothers, sons of Isaac and Rebecca. They were not identical twins. Actually, they were opposites. And you go back to the 25th chapter of Genesis now, and let me just reach in and lift out a few verses there. Verses 22 and 23. It says, And the children struggled together within her. In other words, what we have here is that Rebecca is going to give birth to twins. Now listen, I'm reading. If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be born of thee. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Now, these two individuals, one struggling against the other, that, first of all, was something that took place in actual life. We find that these two boys, twins, one of them was an outdoor boy, outgoing fella. That was Esau, a hunter. And then this man, Jacob, he was tied to his mama's apron string. He was a mama's boy, and they were very far apart. But the very interesting thing is that Jacob had a spiritual discernment that Esau did not have. Esau was a man of the flesh. He did not care for his birthright. He was willing to sell it for a bowl of soup. And it wasn't that he was so hungry that he was about to perish, and there wasn't anything to eat in the home of Isaac. There was plenty to eat, but he smelt the soup that this brother his had made, and he so discounted his birthright that he was willing to trade it in on a bowl of soup, which he actually didn't have to have at all. He just happened to be hungry, and it was the whim of the moment, and it was the desire of the flesh, and he is willing to trade away all of his spiritual heritage for that. And believe me, That's a picture of Christians today, because this is an illustration of a great truth for you and me today. You see, a believer has two natures within him, and they're struggling against each other. Paul makes this point in the epistle to the Galatians. He says, speaking to believers now, "...for the flesh lusteth or wars against the Spirit." and the Spirit wars against the flesh. These are contrary. The one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Now, these are the two natures in the believer, the new nature and the old nature. They are opposed to each other. And Esau pictures the flesh, Jacob the Spirit. And you follow the history of this boy Esau, and you read, I'm reading now from Genesis 25, verse 30. Esau said to Jacob, "'Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint.' Therefore was his name called Edom." Edom means red, or sunburned, actually. And Jacob said, "'Sell me this day thy birthright.' And Esau said, "'Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me?' And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore to him, sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. And he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. That is, he didn't care. And thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, as we've said, Edom means red, red and hairy. It means sunburn. And a sunburn occurs when the skin is able to absorb all the rays of the light except the rays that make it red. And it's quite interesting to see that the sunburned man in Scripture is the man who could not absorb the light of heaven, and it burned him. Friends, the light of heaven will either save you or burn you, one or the other. And you'll either absorb it or you'll be burned by it. That's always true. Now, this is the story of Esau, a man who was opposite to Jacob, who became Israel, a prince with God. Esau represents the flesh, and he became Edom. Israel represents the Spirit. Now, we have seen Esau in the first book of the Old Testament. Now, we come now to the last book of the Old Testament and read this strange language. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say... "...in what way hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau." That's in Malachi 1, 2, and part of 3. Now, that's a strange statement, is it not? Now, God says in the last book of the Old Testament, "...I love Jacob, and I hated Esau." And that immediately presents a problem. A student came one time to Dr. Griffith Thomas... And he said to him, Dr. Thomas, I'm having a problem with this statement in Malachi. And Dr. Thomas says, what's your problem? He said, well, I cannot understand why God says that he hates Esau. Dr. Thomas replied to the young man, he says, young man, I'm having a problem with that verse too, but my problem is different from yours. I cannot understand why he said that he loved Jacob. I can understand why he hated Esau but I can't understand why he loved Jacob. Now, the thing that lends importance to the little book of Obadiah, for it's the only place in the Word of God where you have the explanation of why God hated Esau. And again, I turn to the key verse. How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things Sought out. Now, Ginsburg, the great Hebrew scholar, translates it this way How are the things of Esau stripped bare? In other words, in the little book of Obadiah here, there is open before us for the first time Edom or Esau. In other words, Obadiah puts a microscope down on Esau. And when you look through the eyepiece, you see Edom. Not only did Obadiah focus the microscope on him, but Obadiah's God's microscope. And you come here and and look through the microscope, will you look? What do you see? One Esau now is magnified. And that has become a nation of 250,000 little Esau. And that's Edom. And you could take a picture to a photographer, a little miniature, and he makes an enlarged picture. He says, I blew up the picture. Well, Obadiah is the blown-up picture of Esau. You inflate a tire tube to find a tiny leak in it. You couldn't find the leak until you inflated it. Just so Obadiah presents Esau inflated so that you can see where the flaw was in his life. And you won't maybe find it back in Genesis. You can see why God said he hated Esau. You see, what was at the beginning, a little pimple under the skin, is now a raging and angry cancer. What was small in Esau is now magnified a hundred thousand times in the nation. It's interesting to note, God did not say at the beginning that he hated Esau. He had to wait until he became a nation and he could reveal the thing that caused him to hate Esau. Now, one thing we need to get firmly fixed in our mind. God did not say that when the boys were born. He did not say that when they became men and both of them really very miserably failed. One Esau Despise this birthright. And Jacob, down underneath that crust of cleverness and crookedness, there was that desire for the things of God. And he went about getting the birthright in the wrong way, that which God had vouchsafed to him and actually gave to him in a right way, and before he could become. Not Jacob, but Israel. Why, God had to break him, and God broke his leg in order to get him. And the man limped the rest of his life. And you find him way down in Egypt, dying, leaning on that staff that he had leaned on so many years because of the fact that God finally got that man and brought him to himself. Now, God never said that he hated Esau, nor did he say he loved Jacob. But you come now to the last book in the Old Testament, and one is a nation, a nation of several million people, and the other likewise was a nation. And you see now, Israel has been mightily used of God down through the centuries up to this point. And there has come in their history a man like Moses, Joshua, and Samuel, and David, and Hezekiah, and then Nehemiah and Ezra, and on down the line. But Esau, the nation that came from him, became a godless nation and turned their backs upon God. But what was it that caused God to hate him and to hate the nation? Now, when you put something under the microscope, it's enlarged. And instead of having one man, you have a nation now, and Esau has been enlarged into a great nation. And you begin to see the defect, you begin to see that thing that is the real problem. I know that. When I had cancer, they took some of the infected part and they put it under the microscope. And you couldn't see it, just looking at it. But putting it under the microscope, they told me what they could see. Well, we have here now a look at this man, Esau. And Esau is Edom. That was repeated about three times back in the book of Genesis. Now we are looking at Edom, but we see Esau, and we see this great nation. Now, what was the sin? Well, let me read now verse 2. He says, "...behold, I have made thee small among the nations. Thou art greatly despised." Now, this great people because they were a great people, as we are going to see in just a few moments. But they now have been brought down, are going to be brought down. This, I think, is a prophecy that looks to the future. And where we stand today, it's been fulfilled. Now, I want to look at that. What was it? Well, I read verse 3 now. The pride of thine heart, hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? Now, what was it that God said here that he hated them for? What well, it was pride. Now, I'm sure that the minute that I say that, that it's taken the wind out of the sails of many listeners. And they're going to say, is that all? Why may I say that I don't quite understand that? Pride is bad, but it's not that bad, is it? Well, let me show you how we have things all out of proportion today. Suppose I told you that there was a certain Christian that I knew that was drinking very heavy. And I would like to ask your advice of what the church should do with him that he belongs to. Now, I'm sure that many of you would say he ought to be put out of the membership of the church. And if you said that, I would agree with you. Now, suppose I'd say to you that an officer of a certain church was caught the other night in a supermarket by the police, and he was breaking into the safe. He's a thief. And I say to you, what do you think the church that he belongs to ought to do with him? You'd say, well, I'm sure that he ought to be put out of the church. He ought to be disciplined. And if you said that, I'd agree with you on that. Now, suppose, though, that I told you that I knew a member of a certain church, and he was filled with pride. One of the proudest persons that I'd ever met. And I'd ask you, what do you think the church ought to do with him? Now, I dare say that none of you would suggest that he be put out of the church. I think many of you that have a very tender heart, many of you do, would say, Well, I think maybe the pastor ought to talk to him or somebody ought to talk with him about that, that it's wrong to have pride, but that it's not such a bad sin after all and it's one that doesn't show at least. It's not like getting drunk. It's not like stealing. It's not like lying. Would I surprise you if I told you that in the sight of God that pride... Is a lot worse sin than getting drunk. And the Bible has a great deal to say about drunkenness. And I have been giving in the past few weeks a great deal in that particular field, not only of the condition today, but that which brought down the nation Israel. God said that because of their drunkenness, that's the thing that brought Babylon down, It destroyed Alexander the Great. It brought Rome down and all of the great nations. It'll bring our nation down. But may I say to you that in God's sight, pride is worse than that. Now, this, by the way, is one that gets right down where we live today. And it's very important because this is right where the bat hits the ball, friends, This is where the plane of your life and my life touches down on the runway of the life of God today, and we are given here a right perspective. I want to say to you that pride is the sin of sins. It's one of the worst sins of all. It's something that the Scripture condemns above everything. Now... Let me give you some scripture for this. God says that he hates pride. And if that's the thing that Edom's eaten up with, God can say, Esau have I hated because of that of pride. I don't say it's an unpardonable sin, but I'd say that if there's anything is unpardonable, that would be it. Notice what the writer of the Proverbs says, In the 6th chapter of Proverbs, verse 16, it says, "...these six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. Number one, a proud look. Number two, a lying tongue. Three, and hands that shed innocent blood. Four, a heart that deviseth wicked imagination, five, feet that be swift running to mischief, six, a false witness that speaketh lies, and seven, he that soweth discord among brethren. And you know what number one is on God's hate parade? A proud look. A proud look. When that man or that woman walks into church, and looks at some poor saint there that they know has committed a sin, and the man lifts his head, puts his nose in the air, and the woman draws her skirts about her. Of course, they wouldn't have many skirts today to draw about them, but suppose that she did that. May I say to you, that in the sight of God is worse than getting drunk. And that's not condoning drunkenness. That's saying that drunkenness is bad, but here's something that's lots worse than that. And that's not all that God says. God says He resists the proud, but He always is on the side of the humble. God hates a proud look, as we've seen. And He says this, that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil and pride. And John tells us that pride of life is not of the Father. Where does it come from? If there's anything that comes from the devil, that is it. And today, a great many of the saints have pride of race, pride of face, and pride of grace. They're even proud they've been saved by grace. My friends, that ought not make you proud or something to even brag about. It's something to glorify God about, but it's something to humble you. Aren't you ashamed of yourself that you have to be saved by grace because you're such a miserable sinner? Well, may I say to you, I wish I had something to offer God for salvation. I have none, and therefore I have to be saved by grace. And I can't even boast of that. And there are too many boasting today of the fact that they have been sinners. Well, God giveth grace to the humble. And we are told, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what kind of mind did he have? Lowliness of mind. He said, I'm meek and humble. And for that reason, take my yoke upon you. And that after all, was the sin of Satan. That is the thing that I think is destroying the testimony of a great many Christians today, and have made them very ineffective for God. Although they go in for show, but the thing they're building is a big haystack, and they're not building on the foundation of Christ in gold and silver and precious stones. And pride today has a great many of the saints down for the count of ten. Pride today has pinned the shoulders to the mat of a great many today. And this is the thing that brought Satan down. He says, "I'll exalt my throne above the stars of God. I'll be like the Most High." And that was actually Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. He strutted like a peacock in the palace of his kingdom of Babylon. And I'm quoting Scripture now, Daniel 4.30. The king spoke and says, "...is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty?" And what happened to him? "...while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it's spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. They shall drive thee from man, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And that's no accident, friends. The psychologists would call that hysteria today. That led to a form of amnesia, where this man did not know who he was. And he went out and acted like an animal of the field. Why? Because when a man is lifted up by pride, he's not lifted up. He has come down to the level of the beasts. And that is the picture of him. And God debased this man, brought him down to the level of the beasts of the field. Now, what is pride? How would you define pride? Well, let me give you a definition of it. I've said that I think it's a form of insanity. But pride is this. Pride of heart is the attitude of a life that declares its ability to live without God. May I give that to you again? This is important because, as I said a moment ago, this is where the bat hits the ball for a great many Christians. And... Here is the definition. Pride of heart is the attitude of a life that declares its ability to live without God. And so we find here the pride of heart had lifted up this nation of Edom. And just like Esau, who despised his birthright, and he thought a bowl of soup, even in the home of Isaac, where there was plenty to eat, but he liked that bowl of soup, and he liked it more, and he liked his birthright. He didn't care for God at all. And when he despised that birthright, he despised God. And now Esau's become a great nation, and you have a nation now that declares its ability to live without God. Listen to them. Verse 3, The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Now, he lived in a very unique place. Actually, he lived in that rocky mountain fast of the rock-hewn city of Petra. It's still in existence today. And it can be viewed. Many are just overwhelmed by the size of that city. A ready-made city. A city that is there today, hewn out of the rock. And it's protected by the entranceway, which is called El Very narrow in places where a horse and rider can get through, but with just a bit of twisting and turning. And actually... It was a city that could easily be defended. And it was a city that had become a place where the nations of the world found out that they were safe there. Everything was secure. It was like the First National Bank. And many nations deposited vast sums of gold and silver there because they felt that that city could not be taken They dwelt in the clefts of the rock. What a picture. That is, they were living in these great buildings that were hewn out of solid rock inside in this great canyon. And there are a couple of canyons there. And up and down the sides of it. And they were perfectly secure. At least they thought they were in that particular place. And they actually signed a Declaration of Independence. They had a false security there, and they severed all relationship with God, even if they had any before. They seceded from the government of God. They revolted and rebelled against Him. Now, what's God going to do in a case like this? Well, let's look at the next verse. In verse 4, God says now, Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. Though they would exalt themselves like the eagle. Now, the eagle is the symbol of deity. They were going to overthrow God, as Satan attempted to do, and they were going to become deity. They were going to handle the business that God is supposed to handle. How many people today are attempting to run their lives as if they were God? They don't need God. They live without Him. And the interesting thing is that the way God has made all of us, He hasn't put a steering wheel on any of us. And you know why? Because He wants to guide our lives. He wants us to come to him for salvation first. Then he wants to take charge of our lives. And when you and I run it, we're in the place of God. We're in the driver's seat. We're the one that's the captain of our own little ship and our own plane. And we're going through the water and through the air just to suit ourselves. May I say to you, that is pride and pride. Anyone that reaches that position is committing a sin, if they continue in it, that is fatal, because it means they go into a lost eternity. Now, take a good look. Will you come now and look down in the microscope again? Edom now is the incarnation of Esau. And there stands Esau. What do you see now? You see a human Animal. And here is animalism in the raw and the terrifying ugliness of it all. Now, the doctrine of evolution is taught as a fact of science today. I consider it the greatest delusion of the 20th century. And I think that there are many outstanding men that are beginning to get away from it. It's accepted by the average man as truth. And there are strong and, I think, intelligent objections by reliable scientists. Unfortunately, they are largely ignored. And I'm sure that there are many people saying to me, well, I thought we descended from animals. And now you say that men act like animals. And that's exactly what I'm saying is that we didn't descend up, we descended downward. There's been no ascension, there's been a descension. May I repeat again, the teaching of evolution is a fact of science. I think is the greatest delusion of the 20th century. And I believe we'll come out of the fog and move to another, that is, the unbeliever will move to another explanation for the origin of things. And actually, evolution does not give the origin of things at all. It's been accepted by the average man as truth, gospel truth, because today on television, radio, in our schools, in publications, we're brainwashed that evolution is a fact, a proven fact, and it's absolutely not. The strong and intelligent objections that have been given by reliable scientists, are entirely ignored today. Now, I'm not going to discuss the pros and cons of evolution. That's not my thought. But this is something that I became interested in even before I began studying for the ministry. When I was 16 years of age, I had a great desire to read and study. And I appealed to the wrong man, a minister who was a liberal at that time, And he urged me to read Darwin. And when I was 16 years old, I had read The Origin of Species. I'd read The Descent of Man and other miscellaneous papers. And I studied it, of course, later in college. I studied it again in a denominational seminary. And there it was theistic evolution, which I think is probably the most absurd interpretation of the origin of things of all. But I want to say to you that as far as I'm concerned, I totally reject the godless propaganda of evolution. This idea that it's from mud to man, from protoplasm to personality, from amoeba to animation, I'd like to dismiss the argument with the quotation from Dr. Edwin Conklin, the great biologist. And he said, The probability of life originating from accident is comparable to the probability of the unabridged dictionary resulting from an explosion in a printing shop. And that, my friend, is pretty far-fetched, is it not? And that's good enough for me. Now, the chief difficulty with the theory of evolution is its end results. Evolution leads to an awful, fatal pessimism. It leads man to believe that he has arrived, that he's something, that he is actually up at the top. Well, that has led, really, to a fatalism today, a fatal pessimism. And it's in our colleges, and it came to an alarming rate several years ago, of suicides among young people. I attribute it to the teaching of evolution. And Dr. Albert Einstein made this statement, and I think many would consider him an authority. He says, "...the man who regards his own life and that of his fellow creatures as meaningless is not merely unfortunate, but almost disqualified for life." That's a good statement. And if you want to know how this has affected men, listen to the poetry of a man that died not long ago. Why stand Hugh Auden? The British poet, however, he came to this country and became a citizen of this country, or else he would have been the poet laureate of Great Britain. And listen to this pessimism of this man. Were all the stars to disappear or die, I should learn to look at an empty sky and feel its total dark sublime though this might take me a little time. How pessimistic. And then he added this, Looking up at the stars, I know quite well that for all they care, I can go to hell. Now, I say to you, that's pessimism. And that is the teaching that evolution has led to. But wait just a minute. The frightful thing, that you have here in Obadiah, and the startling thing, and the amazing thing is this. The little book of Obadiah is God's trenchant answer to evolution. And this is the reason that he said what he did about Edom. Now, let me illustrate this. Out on Wilshire Boulevard, here in Los Angeles, there are what are known as the La Brea Tar Pits. And they built a museum, which is, I understand, a great museum. I haven't been there. But it's a tourist attraction in Southern California to go to the La Brea Tar Pits and then to go to this museum. Now, I went there when it was just a small museum. When I came out here, first time as a tourist. And they showed us how man lived. That is, now that's according to the scientists out here, how he lived 100,000 to 200,000 years ago in California. And they show him, and he lived like an animal, because he looked like an animal according to the picture that they have of him. And by the way, they didn't get a photograph. The fellow turned around before they got the picture, and they don't have the photograph, but they drew on their imagination. Now, God has something to say to us today. Will you hear me carefully? Why go back a hundred thousand years? Go ahead and ride out Wilshire Boulevard right now at this moment. Out there at this moment, there are men and women that are living like animals. They don't look like animals. Some of them are called beautiful people, but they're living like animals. And the fact is, that they've come down from a high plane where God had created them, and they've come down to the plane where they do not depend on God. And they live not only like animals, they live lower than animals. No animal gets drunk and beats his wife or shoots his children or murders or is homosexual. Only man does that. Man lives lower than animals in Southern California, And they were living like that yonder in Edom and Obadiah's day. I wonder if you've ever heard about the pig up here in Kentucky that he got out of his pig pen and he went out in the woods and he found a still where they were making corn whiskey. And the still was leaking and he began to eat some of the mash and drink the liquid and he got drunk. And for two days he was lying stretched out there drunk. Finally, when he sobered up, well, the pig got up and started to walk away. And when he did, grunting along, they thought they heard him say, I'll never play the man again. Or someone has put it like this. And this is a poem I want to pass on to you. And I put the parenthesis around it. Here I begin. How well do I remember was in the bleak December as I was strolling down the street in manly pride, when my heart began to flutter, and I fell into a gutter, and a pig came up and lay down by my side. As I lay there in the gutter, with my heart still all aflutter, a man passing by did chance to say, You can tell a man that boozes by the company that he chooses, And the pig got up and slowly walked away. May I say to you, friends, man can go lower than an animal in his living down here when he determines that he's going to live without God. Now, I move on here in this tremendous little book. And that's the book I've written on it. It's Evolution and You, (laughs) And I deal with Obadiah, you see. A man didn't come from an animal. Man was created on a high plane, and he fell. He didn't fall up. He fell down. He can go down to the very gutter of life. Now, will you notice verse 5? He says, If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape-gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? What he's saying is this, even if a thief came to you, he'd just get all he wanted. He wouldn't take everything. And it would be true also of a grape-gatherer. He would leave some grapes. There'd be some he wouldn't take. But God says, when I judge you, this is what I'm going to do. Notice verse 6. How are the things of Esau searched out? And Dr. Ginsburg translates that word search out as "strip bare. And this was our key verse. How are the things of Esau stripped bare? Or as we have put it, God's put him under the microscope. And God says, come look. Look through the Word of God, and look here at this man, and God says, I hate him. Why do I hate him? It's because of pride of life. He's turned his back on me, and he has declared his ability to live without God. That's the pride of life. Now, how are his hidden things sought up? Now, frankly, I read the story back in Genesis of Esau, and I don't quite get that. I'm a little slow about getting things, but I miss that in Genesis. Well, I sure don't miss it here. And I can take now the microscope and go back and look at Esau and see why he wanted to trade in his birthright for a bowl of soup. For the very simple reason, it meant that he'd be the priest in the family. It meant a relationship to God. And frankly, he would rather have a bowl of soup than to have a relationship with God. And when you reach that place, friends, you're down on the level of the pig that got down in the gutter. Now, I want to say that kindly, but it's not my idea. I didn't originate it. It's in Obadiah, and God has said this. Now, will you notice? Now, read on. All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Now, Edom was a nation that all the enemies of that day just passed by, because they just couldn't spend time with him holed up in the rock-hewn city of Petra. But Nebuchadnezzar was able to get spies inside the city. And through them, he was able to take the city. And it was taken. Just as God used Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Jerusalem, Jacob's sons, who had turned from God, he uses Nebuchadnezzar also to reach in and take Edom, Esau's sons. Now, will you notice verse 8, "...shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of the mount of Esau?" Now, they were not only noted for the fact that they were well protected in their Rocky Mountain fast, and that beautiful city it is, even to this good day. And they were living there in a false security, but they had developed a wisdom and learning and actually superstition. They found the altars, the bloody altars that are up on top of the mountains round about there where they offered sacrifices. And they were given over to that. And peoples from all nations came there for the wisdom of these people, you see. They couldn't get wisdom from God when man can't get wisdom from God They'll always turn to the nether world, and they did that here. And this city was noted for it. Verse 9, And thy mighty man, O Teman, and that's another name for the Edomites, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. Now, he's going to list here, From verse 10 through 14, he's going to give a list, a catalog of the reasons that God's going to destroy them. That is, he's going to spell it out. The pride of life, we said, is the great sin. But as we've already indicated, it leads to the committing of other sins. You see, your philosophy of life, friends, is going to gradually work its way down into your fingers and your feet and your eyes and all of your senses. And you're going to express that philosophy in some way. And if you're godless, you're going to lead a godless life. If you are godly, you're going to lead a godly life. That naturally follows. Now, God mentions here, actually five different reasons of why he judges them. They committed certain acts, and five acts are mentioned here, and he spells it out. But God was to punish them, and he was to punish them in two different ways. He was to send them into captivity, just as he did the nation Israel. But with this exception, that the nation Israel would return and be a people as they are today. But there would come a time when the Edomites would cease being a nation, and they would never become a nation again. Never again. Now, somebody's going to raise the question, do you think that they are any Edomites around today? No, they're not around today. They intermarried with the Ishmaelites and the others there of the desert. And that would be part of the Arab world today. There's a difference in Arabs, by the way. And that would explain that difference. You'd find them over there among the Arabs today. And again, still the enemy of the nation Israel. Now, Obadiah is a prophecy that answers a very important question. Why did God say it, the last book of the Old Testament, that Esau have I hated and Jacob have I loved? Now, he never said that in Genesis. He waited until both became a nation. And you find that now God puts Esau under the microscope and he's a great nation. And the overweening sin... "...of this nation was the pride of thine heart hath deceived thee." Now, I'm sure that gave folk quite a letdown, because a great many people, they just don't consider pride as being a great sin. And we made a contrast between murder and lying and stealing. And a great many people would say, well, a proud man, it's bad that he's proud... But that's not as bad as being a murderer. God says it's worse than being a murderer. It's worse than being an alcoholic, to be a man lifted up by pride. And God says he hates a proud heart. He's made that very clear in the Word of God. God gives grace to the humble, but the proud, he can do nothing with them at all. And we discovered that pride is... An attitude, pride of heart, is an attitude of a life that declares its ability to live without God. God hates that. This is His universe. And He is to be worshipped. He is to be praised. He is to be recognized. And when a man, a little creature down here, no bigger than a little bug in God's great, vast universe, When that little creature lifts himself up in pride, God says he hates it. Now, God loves you, but God hates your pride. And if you are eaten up with it, may I say to you, there's nothing God can do with you at all. Now, the question arises, it's an attitude. A man can be proud and maybe not reveal it. However, I do think that this is one sin of the life that you can't conceal. There are certain things you can conceal. You can conceal hatred. You can conceal lust. But you cannot conceal pride very long. It's going to break out like a running cancer because of the fact that it is such a tremendous driving force in man. Now, The attitude of the life will lead to action of the life. Now, the thing that Obadiah does, he now gives a catalog of the actions that are derived from the pride of the heart. And these are the terrible sins that come from that. Now, you must remember that Esau and Jacob were brothers. They were twin brothers. They were not identical twins. They were actually opposite twins. But they were twins, and they grew up in the same family, same father and mother. And there was a struggle from the very beginning. There was a hatred and a bitterness that was never healed, and was never healed when they became two great nations. And we find, though, that God had something to say to His people about their relationship to Edom. And I want to turn to one of the verses of Scripture. For instance, Psalm 137, verse 7. He says, "...Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it even to the foundation thereof." And Edom, instead of befriending Israel in their dark hour when the Babylonians destroyed their nation, while well, they stood on the sidelines. In fact, they became the cheering section and urged them on. But when you go way back in their history to Deuteronomy 23, verse 7, and I'd like to read this to you because this is very interesting. God said to them at the beginning, when they came into that land, Thou shalt not abhor an Edomite, for he's thy brother. Thou shalt not abhor an Egyptian, because thou wast a sojourner in his land. But the tie with the Edomite was greater. He's your brother, the blood brother. And because of that, God says that you're not to hate him. And yet we see that Edom manifested that bitterness and hatred throughout the entire length and extent of the nation. And they were a proud people in the rock hewn city of Petra, that city that was in that Rocky Mountain stronghold, that fortress that could not be taken. And they thought they could not be destroyed. And they were guilty now of certain things. And there are five specifics, five specific actions that are mentioned here that are derived from pride and attitude of the life to live without God. Number one is in verse 10, and I want us to look at these now. The first one is violence. Will you notice it? For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. And actually, two things were to happen to them. They were to go into captivity. Finally, Babylon was able to take the city and did take them captive. And the second thing, they were to be utterly destroyed so that they would not be a nation. And I think it's quite interesting that you don't hear of the Edomites today, but you hear a great deal of the Israelites. They have become a nation. Now, here is an example of a nation that has attempted to live without God. And the first thing that they are guilty of, is violence. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. And they were a violent people, a warlike people, and they came in that direction. We have learned the hard way in this country that very little can be settled by war and violence never really settles questions at all. Violence is not God's method. You may be sure of that. Now, that is number one. Now, number two, the thing that they did, they joined the enemy. Verse 11, "...in the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, "...and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them." In other words, you find that they've joined the enemy, and they've gone over to the other side. This is the awful, terrible thing that they were guilty of. Now, the third thing is in verse 12. "...but thou shouldst not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldst thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldst thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress." Now they rejoice over the calamity that is come to Judah. And that is always... An action of pride. When you find someone who rejoices over the trouble that some other individual is having, you may be sure that you're speaking to a person who's very proud. And pride is something God says he hates. What a revelation this is. Now, I want to cover all of these and then come back and look at this. Number four in verse 13, is they were not only joined up with the enemy, but they're guilty of looting and plundering and pillaging after the enemy has taken Israel away. They absolutely move in and loot. Now, will you notice this? "...Thou shouldst not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou shouldst not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity." nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Now, pride will lead a man to do some terrible things. One of the things is stealing. One of the things is dishonesty in business. Many a man, in order to keep up a front in his business, will resort to dishonest methods. Many a man to win a woman, to become his wife, will use dishonest methods. Many a man to keep up with the fellows at the club, he will resort to dishonest methods. And today our society, our contemporary society, is honeycombed with dishonesty, with people trying to keep up with the Joneses. What is the problem? Well, the problem, the root problem is pride. And this proud man is trying to live his life apart from God. And when he does that, it leads to this sort of thing. May I say to you, the Bible is still the best book on psychology. It's the best book to get down at the root of the problem that is in the human heart, that which today is, is destroying our society. And again, will you forgive me for saying this? We have so many little courses in our churches, and the world today puts them on. Today you can go anywhere and take a course in most anything. You can go and spend two or three weeks. You can learn this. You can learn this psychological approach, actually how to make a forceful speech how to improve yourself in your job, uh, how to become a better neighbor, how to love your wife more, and how to treat your children better and bring them up. And we have all kinds of little gimmicks given today. Who would ever have thought that in the prophecy of Obadiah that you have the root cause that's at the very basis of our society today that are leading both men and women to commit terrible deeds. Why? Because the root problem is pride. They're trying to live without God today and attempting to live without God. It leads them into dishonest actions. It leads them to get with the wrong crowd. It'll lead them to do these things that they should not be doing and that will bring their destruction. In fact, these actions are self-destructive. Now, notice the fifth one here. Neither, and that's verse 14, Neither shouldst thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldst thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. Now, to me, this is the lowest thing that they did. This is the worst thing that they committed. This is where they reveal they're no more than an animal, and that it is the survival of the fittest, by the way. And it's the revelation of the bloody tooth. What is it? They became a traitor. They betrayed their brother. They stood at the crossroads. And when Nebuchadnezzar came, destroyed Jerusalem, And we know that Israel began to scatter, and the Babylonians would chase them. And the Edomites, naturally living down in a country where people could hide, many of the Israelites went down there. And the Edomite says, he's right over yonder in that cave. Oh, did I see a group come by here of Israelites fleeing? Yes, they went right through that canyon there. I think you'll find them holed up in that canyon. They betrayed their brother. May I say to you, this is the lowest that they came to. This is the case of dog-eat-dog. And this is something that a businessman right here in Los Angeles said this to me. He says, business today is (laughs) dog-eat-dog. We've come to that. Living without God today, proud, and want to make a name for ourselves, want to make money, want to be a success. What's back of that? Pride. What is pride? That's that attitude of the life to live without God. And it leads man to betray other man. How many men in business today will betray another man in order to get his job? How many will pretend to be a friend when at the time he's an enemy? How many in government today, and believe me, we've had enough of that, that will betray and I want to tell you that it's sickening when we look at our society today. And friends, I hate to say it, but it's in the church. I happen to know this. I was a pastor for over 40 years, and I know this. And during most of my pastoring, I had a staff. And during over half of that period, I had a large staff. And during that period, I had some very wonderful men, Faithful man, men I could depend on, men I could rest on. But I learned this. I learned it to my sorrow, and it took me a long time to learn it, that when I had a member of the staff who was a proud young man, he would bear watching, because a proud young man that's trying to get on in the world, he's willing to go up the ladder of success even if he has to step on the fingers of those that are below him. And I've seen that happen on several occasions. You remember Shakespeare put it like this. Shakespeare had Julius Caesar say it. I don't think Julius Caesar ever thought of it. He may have, but Shakespeare thought of it. He has Julius Caesar say, I don't like this man. He is lean and hungry looking. (laughs) And he says, I want men that are fat around me. Well, I don't think he's talking so much about being fat physically or being skinny physically. I think he's talking about that lean, hungry look of the proud man who wants to get on in the world. Now, this is not honest ambition. This is an ambition of a godless man living without God, not depending on God. And he's going to do it by himself. And in doing it by himself, he's willing to use any method because the end justifies the means. That's the way that he's living. And I've seen that in my ministry. The head of the Church of England was speaking to the bishops many years ago. And he made this statement. And it has a double meaning. He says, every bishop has a crook on his staff. What he primarily was talking about, the staff of a shepherd, and that he is to use that crook in correction of the sheep. But he also had another meaning, that each one of these bishops had a staff. And he could be sure of one thing, that even the church, there'd be a crook in there somewhere, there would be a disloyal follower, one that would put a knife in your back. And I found that true. I found out that even among young ministers that every now and then I'd get one and he'd be willing in order that he might advance. He'd be willing to even put a knife in my back. And though you'd brought him in and tried to help him, he'd be willing to put a knife in your back. Do you see now why God says he hates pride? It leads men really to act like animals. The horrible truth is that when a man attempts to live without God, he's lower than the animals. Therefore, Obadiah is God's devastating answer to evolution. What consummate conceit of a man who is living apart from God to think that he's evolved from an animal when he's living like an animal? And there are multiplied numbers of people who live like animals In our day, they go around with the conceited boast, I have come from an animal. I'm evolved. And look at me today. God says, in effect, where have you been? Where really do you think you've come from? I created you in my image, and you fell. You fell so low that you're below the animal world. May I say, God says, I hate that, and I... Don't apologize for God, because he never asked me to apologize for him at all. Now, if you want to see the final issue of Edom in Israel, you will have to come to the time of Christ. And you remember Herod? Herod was what? An Edomite. He was in the line of Esau. And you remember that they brought the Lord Jesus' word one day, said, Herod's looking for you to kill you. He said, go tell that fox. Fox? Yes, go, go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be finished. May I say to you, the Lord Jesus said, I have nothing to do with him. And when he was finally brought before him, he wouldn't even open his mouth before Herod. And there they stand, Jesus and Herod, the final issue of Jacob and Esau. Why didn't our Lord speak to him? Because our Lord doesn't speak fox language. He doesn't talk like an animal. And therefore, you have the final issue today. This is the reason that God hates that thing that leads man away from God. Now we have come in this little book of Obadiah down to verse 15. There actually are actually not but 21 verses in the entire book, by the way. And that means that there are actually not very many verses at all in the book. It is, as we've indicated, the briefest book in the Old Testament. Now, we've seen that this is the judgment of Edom, destruction of the nation in the first 16 verses here. And we saw in the first nine verses God's charge against Edom. The charge against Edom was pride of heart, an attitude of life that declared its ability to live without God. And God says he hates that. Then the crime of Edom in verses 10 to 14, because an attitude of life leads to actions, And you have a catalog of actions from verses 10 through 14. And we looked at those last time. Now we come today first to see the catastrophe that came to Edom in verses 15 and 16. Now, will you note this? Because this, I think, is a rather important section and just a little difficult. It says, for the day of the Lord is upon all nations. Now, this looks forward to the day of the Lord. And again, this is, as we have attempted to show from the Word of God, is a technical expression that covers a period of time beginning with the great tribulation period. We are living today in the day of grace or the day of Christ. And the emphasis today is where the Holy Spirit takes the things of Christ and shows them unto us. Now, after the church is removed, the day of the Lord begins. He begins to move in judgment. God's day begins with the night, always, the evening and the morning with the first day, the second day, and so on. So that it begins with the darkness and the judgment of the great tribulation period. And then finally, the Son of Righteousness rises with healing in His wings. And that's the coming of the Lord Jesus to the earth to establish His kingdom here upon the earth. And at that time, there will be certain nations that are going to enter into the kingdom. You remember in the Olivet Discourse that we're told all nations will be gathered before Him. Now, very frankly, I want to say that It's not quite clear to me whether these ancient nations of the past that have long since disappeared, whether they will be raised for a judgment as a nation at that time, or will it be at the judgment of the great white throne? Now, very frankly, I find that commentators, I have one book before me, and it's a very fine book, And it says in one place that Edom is to be utterly destroyed, and then again, he says that it will again be raised up in the last days of world history, and it speaks of Edom. Well, I believe that Edom will become a nation, and this is now my private viewpoint, my private interpretation, and... I'm sure you've discovered by now that anything that I go out on a limb on, you better not go out with me, because it may break off. But I'm of the opinion that when he mentions here the day of the Lord is near upon all nations, that it means that Edom will become a nation during the end times. They have now disappeared as a nation. Well... Somebody says, could that happen? Well, it sure happened to the nation Israel. For 2,500 years, they were not a nation. And now they've become a nation. They've had problems, but they've become a nation. Now, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. And how are you going to interpret all the nations? Well, I interpret it as meaning all the nations. And that the day of the Lord is the day that many of these ancient nations are going to come back into existence again. I think that is something that the Word of God, I believe, makes rather clear to us. And you see, a nation is responsible to God and the people of a nation. Now, many of you who've been with us from the beginning, you will recall that when we were in the book of Deuteronomy, in the 21st chapter, there, God gave a very unusual law. He said that when a man has been found slain out on the highway, then you are to measure what city is closest to that slain man, and that city is responsible for the man. They are to take over the case, attempt to find out who did it. In other words, that city is responsible. Now, I think that is a great principle that God has put down, that you and I today as Christians, we can talk about our citizenship is in heaven, and the head of the church is there. That's true. But the feet of the church is right down here where we live today. And we do have a responsibility as a citizen of the nation that we are members of. And we should exert that influence for God as much as we possibly can. And I don't mean to say by that that the Christian is to jump into politics, but I am of the opinion that God could use a great many more real born-again Christians in politics today. Someone has said it's become so dirty that no Christian could get involved in it. Well, I think you could. I believe that you could do that if, A man like Lot could get involved in the politics of Sodom, which he did. He was a judge sitting in the gate. I'm of the opinion that a real born-again Christian who's willing to stand on his two feet and be counted could be used to God today in government. And therefore, nations are responsible to God. Now, this doesn't mean that he's judging nations on the basis of whether they accept or reject Christ as a nation because there's never been a nation yet that has accepted Christ wholeheartedly. I think it's always been a mistake to speak of certain nations as being Christian nations. It's quite true that the church has had a great influence on a nation like England and on our nation today. But there never was a time when it could be said that either one of these nations were Christian nations And certainly both are very far from God today. So the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. And I believe that this nation that God destroyed, they're out of business today. I mean, that prophecy has been literally fulfilled. The question is, are they going to come back during the day of the Lord? I think so. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward will return upon thine own head. Now, actually, what happened to this nation was this. Edom, as we have indicated in this study, was finally captured by Babylon. They did it by getting spies on the inside of that very impregnable fortress city. And they were taken about the same time that Israel was taken. And actually, in the end time, we are going to find that Edom will again be on the scene in the end times. And there are certain references to that. And I'm not going to turn to them today, but Isaiah 63, 1 and 6, for instance, which definitely refers to the future. That is a reference to it, that they will be around. And they were, of course, destroyed by Babylon, but the Maccabees also subjugated them. And then finally, the Romans came and when they destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., why, at that time, Edom disappeared from the world scene as a nation and has not been heard of since then. But they are to be brought back again. And we find that by the time, though, you get to the millennium, it looks as if they have not yet made the world scene, But they will be again on the scene of world history. Now, let me read on from there. As you can see, this is a debatable point, and I would not care to debate it or argue it with anyone, because it is one of the many points that are in the Scripture that we can't be too clear on, because after all, what is the importance of this to you and me today? If I find out that Edom is going to be around during the millennium, while I'll be happy, if they're not around, I'm still going to be happy because I know God is working this out according to his own plan and purpose. Now will you notice, he says here, verse 16, "...for as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually." Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. In other words, God says that as you have done, it's going to be done to you. You'll be rewarded the same way. This is called today poetic justice. This is something that seems to work out in human history today. Lex talionis, I think, is the law of retaliation. The Lord Jesus put it like this, As you judge, so shall you be judged. And whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So that what you have here could be called poetic justice. The way this nation acted is the way that this nation is to be judged. And I very frankly shudder for the fact that we were the first nation that dropped an atom bomb and that we have been a warlike nation. I don't think that God lets any nation get by with it. The history of all nations is that as they've dealt it out, that's the way it's come back to them. And that is something that has worked out in the history of the world. Now, I want to move down to the last major division, actually, of the book. And it's only a few verses, and it concerns the nation Israel. And as Edom was destruction, Israel is restoration. Now, in verse 17, we have the condition of Israel. In verse 18, we have the calling of Israel. And then in verses 19 through 21, we have the consummation of all things. In other words, this little nation and this little book that concerns that little nation. How does it fit in to the program of Almighty God? And everything fits into the program of Almighty God. Every individual, I don't care who you are today, the interesting thing is God thought of you or you wouldn't be around, friends. You were in the mind of God. The great question is, Are you going to get in step with him? Are you going to move into eternity with him or into eternity against him? Because his plan and program will be carried out. Now, notice how this fits in here. And you have now the nation Israel brought before us and the role that they are to play in the future. Although God judged them, they were not to be destroyed as a nation. But upon Mount Zion shall be delivered. In other words, salvation is to be offered there for the world. And that's where it's offered to you and me today. The Lord Jesus came and died on Golgotha for you and me today. Now, he's coming back to this earth. And I take it that although his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, he'll be coming into Jerusalem again. And he will be, I think, ruling "...on top of Mount Zion, but upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness." And there's no holiness there today. I've been on top of Mount Zion a half a dozen times, friend, and I never found any holiness there. They're burning candles all over the place there. They're just as far from God there as they are over in the Arab section. Where the Arabs are in the old city. There's no holiness there. There shall be holiness when the Lord Jesus reigns. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Now, I like that expression. They are not possessing their possessions today. They are in the land. It's true. They have a nation. That's all true. They've returned to the land, but they haven't returned to God. And as a result, they do not possess their possessions. There's a lot of difference in having a possession and then possessing your possession. Now, verse 18. And here you have the calling of Israel. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble and they shall kennel in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. Now, there will be an ultimate, final judgment of Esau. I take it that this is a kingdom that will not enter into the eternal kingdoms of this earth that will become the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What is it? that keeps them from being there? Well, pride of heart, that attitude of a life that declares its ability to live without God. And friends, if that's your decision to live without God, that's what you're going to do, live without Him. Now will you notice, verse 19, And they of the Negev shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the Shephihalah the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Gilead is on the east bank of the Jordan River. And in other words, for the first time, they will occupy all the land that God vouchsafed to them. You see, he promised to Abraham a land that contains about 300,000 square miles. Even in their zenith, they only occupied 30,000 square miles. Now, will you notice? And the captives of his host, of the children of Israel, shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath. And Zarephath is way up between Tyre and Sidon in Lebanon. And the captives of Jerusalem, which is in Shepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. And the Negev is the southern part, actually the Sinaiic Peninsula. And now I'm reading the last verse, and here you have the consummation of all things in this section, friends. And Saviors, that is, deliverers, shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. In other words, God is moving forward today. Undeviatingly, unhesitatingly, toward the accomplishment of His purpose, that is, of putting His king on Mount Zion. And He'll turn and turn and overturn, as He says, and He will do that until He comes, whose right it is to rule. Now, today, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He's not the king today, but he is the Savior. And men and women are walking through life with their heads down like animals. You see, only man looks up. Animals look down. There's only one who can lift them. Evolution has not lifted mankind one inch. Look at our world that has been schooled in this godless philosophy. The deadly poison of godless materialism and humanism will bring upon us the judgment of God. God says, though you be lifted up, little man, I'll bring you down. But the Lord Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men unto him. May we look to him today and be saved.